Because I mentioned we're in a series, Necessary Hardship. The verse that is, and we'll see if this thing, it's not moving on me. Here we go. (laughs) The verse, we'll get this. There we go. Sorry. (laughs) I was thinking when that power went out, I thought, oh my goodness, if this, well, I I don't know if we have a plan B for Sunday morning when power goes out. So that might be something we need to draw up. But anyway, the verse that we've been looking at with necessary hardships is this, Jeremiah 29, 11. And and I've been kind of, we've been starting each week with this as we talk about this. This is written by a guy who suffered great. He stepped out. He said, I am going to follow God. I'm going to do what God's asked me to do. And because of it, because of his stepping out, he hurt deeply. He was beat. He was abused. He was left in a well to die. He wrote a book of the Bible called Lamentations, just weeping and crying. And in the midst of his heartache and suffering, he says this, says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This morning, especially... We're going to get to this thing of this plan. God has a purpose for every single one of us. And oftentimes, hardship and suffering robs us of that. And I'm still not moving there, Roland. <laughs> I'm, uh, here's was we think vision. We think through this. Vision is something that's crucial. We think of that plan that God has. It says a clear vision. I just put this quote up here for you to see. A clear vision along with the courage to follow through dramatically increases your chances of coming to the end of your life and looking back with deep satisfaction and thinking, I did it. I succeeded. I finished well. My life counted. I made a difference. Clear vision. It's important as we walk through life to have vision, personal vision. Without vision, what I find is you get to the end of your life, and maybe some of you aren't even at the end of your life. Maybe you're just in your 20s and you're aimlessly wandering around. But without vision, what we begin to do is we begin to ask the question, does my life really matter? I mean, should have I done this? Or what is this all adding up to? See, vision, I'm still not moving. I apologize. (laughs) We may need to have them manually. Vision... Um, gives significance to the otherwise meaningless details of life. Vision, when I have vision and understand purpose and goals, maybe another word you put there, vision gives real significance to the otherwise meaningless details of life. To kind of use an illustration of this, much of what we do, have you ever thought about this? Much of what I do, much of what you do in your day is really insignificant. If measured apart from a larger context, a larger purpose or larger vision. Give an example. I hate the bedtime routine. I don't, I just don't like it. I've always told Tanya, if I could invent something, I think I would follow the Jetsons. You remember the Jetsons, uh, George Leroy or all those guys names, uh, meet George Jetson and his dog. I, anyway, you, oh, Astro, there you go. I think I would kind of go back to that era or looking forward to that era and I would invent a machine where I could come to the end of my day and I could just step into it and have myself completely showered, undressed, redressed, teeth brushed, contacts removed, and then just drop in bed. See, I'm this guy that I have this switch in me. Tanya laughed at this when she first met me. I I go, 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 go. And all of a sudden it's like someone just threw the light switch and I disappear and I'm just, just like that. I'm gone. I'm passed out. I'm, I'm, and I'm takes a lot to move me and wake me up. So I get to this point at night where I just want to get in bed. And I hate brushing my teeth. Brushing our teeth is one of those little insignificant details that we do in our day. Why do we do it? Why do you brush your teeth? Because you have vision. You have vision. You know what your vision is? Here's my vision. Here's why I brush my teeth. Because I love my wife. And I want my wife to love me. I enjoy kissing my wife. I enjoy when she kisses me. If I don't brush my teeth, what happens? My breath is bad. 
Matter of fact, my breath is at the point where some of you, is, I, I mean, I, I chew gum a lot too because I, I talk to a lot of people and I brush my teeth because of this. I also brush my teeth is because I have vision of having whiter teeth, not so yellow. Mine's, I struggle with that at times. My, I wish my teeth, I look at some of you have these really white teeth and I'm a little envious and I want to get these things whiter. I also, I brush my teeth because I don't want to have pain and root canals and I don't want to have a mouthful of metal someday. I mean, so with vision, see how this works? Vision with goals, with purpose, these insignificant things throughout my day, they put into a bigger context. It helps me, helps them make sense. I think through of all the other things, doing the dishes, bedtime routine with the kids. My kids are in here today, so I can't say what I was going to say about that, so we'll leave that go there. It's one of those details and routines, the young parents in here. I know I've, I've, I have a witness with many of you. It is, it's a joy to lay and speak to their little hearts, but night in and night out, there can be frustration with that. Dinner, emails, Facebook, paying the bills, homework, just maybe getting out of bed in the morning. Vision brings significance to the otherwise seamless, insignificant details of life. It's kind of the difference between filling bags with dirt. I mean, if I gave you a shovel and I said, hey, I got a big, huge pile of dirt and sand out here. Would you go fill some bags up? Now, hopefully some of you really love me and would say, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but okay, let's go do it. Now, when you head out there to do it, if that's all I say to you, go fill the bags up with dirt... You're going to be there, and you're going to probably, unless you're a really stellar individual, you're going to half-heartedly and work slow and fill these bags up with sand and dirt. Now, think of the difference if we see a forecast of pending flooding coming. And we're, we live in a valley, and we have got to protect our city and our town and our homes. And now I give you a shovel, and I say, head out back and fill these bags up with dirt because we need to build a dike. We need to build levees to protect our homes and our cities. Suddenly, filling bags with dirt isn't so painful, isn't so insignificant. It now has meaning and significance. That's what vision does. Purpose and goals. Vision, I'll just... Throw the finger at you, Roland. How's that? (laughs) Vision matters. Vision is crucial. Now, as we talked last week, as we're in this series with suffering, here's here's where I want to go with this. Last week, Dr. Ayers was here with us, and here I wrote down some of the things that he said because this suffering and grief and hardship makes this subject very hard. And I love what he said. Here's some of the things he said. He said, during hardship, grief, and suffering... Dreaming or a clear direction of the future is gone. I mean, some of you have hurt deeply, have had personal pain and trauma hit your life. Suddenly this thing called vision and dreams for the future and I've got a bright hope evaporate. Many times, Dr. Ayers said, grief means the death of a dream. He went on to say, zest for life evaporates. It's gone. Too often, he said, last Sunday, actually, he said this, too often we find ourselves looking back at the path to determine the pathway forward, and when looking back involves pain, grief, and loss, we are robbed of our way forward. Hardship and suffering robs us of this precious thing called vision. I remember this all too well when I left Charlotte, North Carolina. I stepped down to Charlotte, North Carolina because of vision. Because of a dream that Tanya and I had. We wanted to work in the inner city. We're going down to work with the church to integrate the races. You realize Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours of our U.S. calendar. 
I mean, it's crazy. Even here in Lancaster County, 20% of Lancaster City is Hispanic. But yet you've got your Hispanic church that pulls off to themselves. You've got your white church that pulls off to itself. And I've always had a passion to work with troubled, abused, neglected people. So this church presents itself to us. And we said, let's go down and plant this church with vision and with heart to integrate this thing called life. Now, you know the story. We hurt. We suffered. We didn't make it. And I remember very, very well the months and days and weeks when we left there, and I now have this job up here in Super Value, and I started there as an order selector, and I'm driving from Lidditz to Denver up 222 to head to Super Value to build pallets, and I remember many a drives, a long, long drive, with just tears pouring from my eyes. My dreams were shattered. My point of reference and normalcy was gone. Who was I? What was this thing that God asked me to do? Is my marriage even going to make it? How about my family? Am I going to be able to provide? Suddenly life and vision, which was always such a part of my heart, had evaporated. And I am left sitting in the middle of this thinking, and here's where I went with it. God, you've abandoned me. I've stepped out to obey you. I've stepped out with dreams and with vision. And you shattered me. You crushed me. You took a baseball bat to my life. Now, it's, where, it's that exact place where we find Moses. If you turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. What we've been doing with this series is we've been looking at the life of Moses. The first 80 years of Moses' life. Just kind of doing a character study. Exodus chapter 3. If you're not familiar with your Bible, you're going to find Exodus uh, towards the very, very front. Find the book of Genesis. Flip back one book and you're going to run into Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. Just to set the context of where we're at in Exodus chapter 3 is Moses at this point. In Exodus chapter 3, we're going to read Moses is 80 years old at this point. He's an 80-year-old man, and he's been in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, he ended up in the wilderness because as you rewind the story, we talked about this just as a way of review, Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. The king of Egypt brought him into his home because the king of Egypt said, I want all the Hebrew babies. All these Hebrews are living in Egypt, and they're slaves. And, and this Pharaoh, this king, is driving them harder and harder because they're multiplying like crazy. And he says, well, if we don't do something about this, they're going to outnumber us, and they're going to take over Egypt. So he says, I want all of the babies killed that are born, all the boy babies. Now, Moses' parents, we talked about this two weeks ago. Um, It references in scripture that Moses was no ordinary child. And we talked about, I don't really believe that. I believe it's his parents were no ordinary parents. And they stepped out with great faith because all life is precious. And they stepped out to preserve this precious life. And they put him in the Nile River in a boat. And then along comes this amazing story. Along comes the daughter of Pharaoh. And she walks and she finds this baby and she picks him up. And there Moses' sister is. You talk about no ordinary parents, no ordinary sister. His sister rushes out there, calm, cool, and collected, and says, would you like me to take, find someone to nurse this baby? And then we, you can have him. You bet. So she takes him back home. Now, Moses was raised in his home. It says in the book of Hebrews that he was raised until the age of weaning. The age of weaning in this Jewish culture would have most likely been somewhere between three years and six years old. So Moses was raised by this mom and this dad, this God-fearing mom and dad that loved God, that cherished him, that poured their heart and their culture and their life and their God into his heart. 
And then they give him up. The pain and the trauma that I can't even begin to fathom. Moses is a little boy who's raised in this loving home is now handed over to the courts of Egypt. He grows now in these two worlds. He's been trained as a Hebrew, a God-fearing Hebrew, and now all of a sudden he's raised in the secular pagan culture of the Egyptians. He knows both worlds. He comes to this place where he believes he, is, he has a vision. To review that, it's going to be up on the screen. It's going to be Acts chapter 7. It says this. You can go there and look at it this week. It says, Moses, was when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He knew he was a Hebrew. It says he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. Now, this is crucial. This next part of this verse is absolutely important to understand. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people could realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Please understand that Moses, when you look back in in Exodus chapter 2, it says Moses looked this way and that. Moses didn't just impulsively respond to this abuse. Moses, as you look at Acts chapter 7, believed in his heart that God had a purpose and a plan for his life. And he believed that his purpose and his plan was to be used of him, a Hebrew, yet living in the Egyptian world. It's, I mean, it all makes sense, right? Let's use God. I mean, he can see he has this vision. God is going to use me to rescue my people. But there's a real glitch. The people didn't think so. They didn't like it. Look back with me at Exodus chapter 2 before we get into chapter 3, verse 14. Exodus chapter 2, verse 14, it says this. The man said, this is one of the fellow Israelites. The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Acts chapter 7 continues, and this is what it says. Please see this, the hardship that Moses faces. 40-year-old man who steps out with vision and a plan and a purpose. Suddenly that purpose and that plan is shattered. He runs away, and this is what Acts chapter 7 records. When Moses heard this, heard this fellow Israelite say this, He, what? He fled. You know what hardship and suffering does? When our plans don't work out, we either do one of two things, psychologists tell us. We're either going to stand and we're going to fight, or we're going to flight. We're going to run. Moses fled. He said, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And he goes to Midian. We already looked at this. It's out in the desert. It's not the big, plush, beautiful Egyptian land near the Nile. It says where he settled. He settled. He just settled down. I remember when I left Charlotte, North Carolina and ended up at Super Value, I settled in. I really believe that, you know, this is, this is the lot of my life. I'm just going to settle down here. God is done with me. I'll make my home here at Super Value. Moses, I'll make my home here at Midian. He settles in as a foreigner. He doesn't feel at home. The suffering and grief and the trauma of, I imagine, probably the attachment stuff of his early childhood and then his suffering as he runs out into this desert. He sits here now with a bunch of foreigners, his family, his biological family, his adopted family, everything he knows that is normal and comforting is gone. And here he sits as a foreigner. And then this other little detail that Stephen in Acts chapter 7 adds, and he had two sons. You say, what's significant about that? 
I love Jim Ayers last week. He said this. He talked about, as quoting him, he referred that many aren't living. We are merely taking laps in the desert around a memory. I think Moses settles down and he has kids and he says, okay, God, this is what I'm relegated to. I'm a foreigner out here in this land. I'll just settle down and take care of my family. And I'll continue to take laps around this dream that I once had. I'll just give my attention to my kids. Grief and hardship hurts. It destroys our dreams. It crushes our vision. Now then this detail is given to us. It says after 40 years had passed. So he was 40 years old when he fled. 40, 40, so what you see there in that verse above. Now 40 years have gone. So he is 80 years old when we come to Exodus chapter 3. An 80 year old man. And it says an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. So turn with me there. Exodus chapter 3. An 80-year-old man who's hurt, he's suffered, he's settled in as a foreigner. But remember, keep in mind, he once had a vision. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending, now this is another crucial detail. Moses was tending the flock of who? Jethro, his father-in-law. He has lived in this land for 40 years and he still doesn't own his own flock. He settled in. He's working for his father-in-law. He doesn't even have his own business. He hasn't even accumulated enough wealth to get his own sheep. He is taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. So here he is as a shepherd for his father-in-law, who's the priest of Midian. And he led the flock, the verse says, to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord, that was referenced in Acts chapter 7 there in the screen, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here am I. Verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses, realizing where he is, hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God. Verse 7, this is crucial. Verse 7 is crucial to your understanding of this, this vision concept. Then the Lord said... Look at what God says to him. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them. The very first thing God says to Moses is what? I have indeed seen something. Do you know what he's saying to Moses? He says, Moses, you know that vision that was in your heart? You know that vision that was birthed? You know when you walked out there and you saw your people suffering? And the vision that you had to do something about it, the goal and the purpose of your heart and your life? Well, guess what, Moses? I believe what God is saying is I have seen the thing that you have seen. I've seen it. And we're going to do something about it. Now, you have to keep in mind, though, this is 40 years now removed from that situation. 
40 years of pain that has festered where he's felt abandoned. And it's going to take a while to get Moses up and moving. So look with me. Here's what happens. There's some objections through this. Verse 11, chapter 3. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? We talked about this a few weeks ago, his first objection. He says, you know what, God, who am I? God's answer, I love in verse 12, I love it. He basically says, I'm not going to read it, but he says, you know what, Moses? I'm going to be with you. Moses, you're right. Who are you? But I will walk with you. And it's really about who I am. Verse 13 then. So Moses kind of gets that in his heart. He wrestles with it. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell him? Now this part I love. I remember when I had uh, God's response. This is amazing. We, when we, some of you see the van I drive around, the Nissan, that was my first minivan. I, re, I pushed back from the minivan movement. I mean, I just did not want to do it. Our, when, when Luke was, Tanya was pregnant, we got our first, we bought our first car. Every, up cars up to that point were given to us. And we went out and bought a Saturn SL2. We thought, you know what? The SL2, a little bigger so we can get kids in that back seat. I am not going to a minivan. Well, we had Luke. Luke was born. We go out from the hospital and go to put his car seat in the back seat. And his car seat did not fit in the back seat to the point where I had to move my seat up. And so I'm driving around the Saturn with my knees all crunched up there. And we realized, you know what? All those people that told us you need a bigger car, we should have listened. So we start go shopping and we find this used Nissan minivan. Now we weren't looking for the entertainment package, but it happened to have this thing. I know some of you don't know what this is, younger people in the crowd, but it had this thing called a VHS player in the center console. These big fat black tapes. Now, we didn't have a lot of VHS tapes, um, kind of forgetting what they were. So we went and yard sailed and picked up a bunch. You know, you get them for like 50 cents at a yard sale. One of them that we got was the Prince of Egypt, the cartoon version of the story of Moses. Well done. Steven Spielberg did an awesome movie. I think I've watched that in that minute, or not watched it. I'm driving. I'm hearing it. But one of my favorite things was this scene. And I remember many a times, many a times, I wouldn't, I'd be driving my van and my kids are in the back watching this Prince of Egypt movie. And you get to this part where God answers Moses on this one. Who, should, who am I going to say sent me? And, and the, the, the animation and the, the soundtrack of it, this voice booms out, I am the I am. And I remember so many times when I'm driving, many a times up there in Mifflin County, I just would tingle. And I sometimes get teary-eyed because what is being said here is the almighty, magnificent, huge God is saying he uses his most holy name for himself. It's a name that is so holy that the Jews of this day and even into Jesus' day with the Pharisees, a lot of them wouldn't even, it's Yahweh. A lot of them wouldn't even pronounce this name because of fear of being irreverent just by saying the name. It's a name that captures all the names of God. See, God references them to himself in names periodically throughout Scripture. Maybe Jehovah Jireh, provider, or he calls himself a shepherd, or he calls himself all these different ways of referring to himself. And here he stands, and he uses the name I am. So he's saying to Moses, Moses, I am your all in all. I am all-powerful, almighty, wise, huge, big, great, creator God sustainer of life. I've given you life and I hold the world in my hands. I am has sent you. It's his response to Moses. Now I would think if I were Moses, I'd say, oh, cool, let's go. Let's go in this plan. But remember Moses dreams were crushed. 
He sat out here in the wilderness for 40 long years. So don't be too hard, Moses, when he, when he objects to this one now. And he says, look at verse 1 of chapter 4, his third objection. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me? Or what if they say the Lord did not appear to you? So this is cool. God says, you know what? That's, that's okay. Let's go with that. We're going to do some cool stuff, Moses. I'm going to put my power on display. See the staff you have in your hand? Throw it in the ground. He throws it down. It turns into a snake. Whoa, that's cool stuff. He reaches down and picks it back up. It turns back into a staff. He says, Moses, now put your hand into your pocket. He puts his hand in. He pulls it out. It's covered with leprosy. He says, now put it back in. So he puts it back in and pulls it out, and it's back normal. And God says, Moses, we're going to go down, and I'm going to put my power on display for all of Egypt to see. So they may doubt you, but I'm going to work. I'm going to show my power. Moses still isn't too satisfied. Then we come to his fourth objection, which we talked about. This is the one we keyed on two weeks ago because he flat out lies about himself. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. We saw in Acts chapter 7, that is not true. Moses is described in the Bible as being a powerful, dynamic communicator and leader in Acts chapter 7. But again, doesn't suffering do that to us? It robs us of our mile markers. It robs us of normalcy. It robs us of the dreams. It begins to help us, make us wonder, who am I? What am I? What am I good at? What can I possibly do? Does God have a plan for me? So Moses sits and he lies and he says, I've never been able to speak. God's still patient. Look at... Uh, Verse 11 there, God gives him response basically by saying, Moses, who gave man his mouth? Moses, I am God. I just told you, I am the I am, and I am going to speak through you. Verse 13 comes his fifth and final objection. But Moses said, oh, Lord, please, please send someone else to do it. Now, something very important. I think what Moses is really wrestling with, he doubts himself, he doubts his gifts, he doubts his abilities, but more significantly, what he really doubts through this chapter 3 and chapter 4, what he really doubts is God and his purposes. What he really doubts is looking at God and saying, God, are you truly for me? God, you really got a plan for my life? I mean, what he's really wrestling with What he's really wrestling with is, you know what? I've been there and I've done that. I stepped out and you've abandoned me 40 years ago. And I've been left to sit here for 40 long years. God, I had that plan. I had that dream. I saw the people suffering. I saw them hurting. I stepped out and here you've left me sit. Now there comes a point, look at verse 14. There comes a point where God has had enough of this. So we look at verse 14, the first phrase of verse 14 of chapter 4. Then the Lord's what? Anger burned against Moses, and he said, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? He's in essence saying, dude, get out of the pit. The thing that's interesting to me, when I think about suffering and grief, I don't think I've ever read a book on suffering and grief that keys on God's anger and his wrath. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, you know what? You know how you really help someone get out of grief is you express anger. Show them who God really is. 
But that's what God does here. It's interesting to me. God burns with anger. And here's what I've come to realize. Please hear this and understand this. This is very important. You can't fully know the love of God without knowing the wrath of God. Please hang with me in this. You hear me say a lot that God is for you. God is love. But I think what a lot of times when people hear that word, they think of a grandfather sitting on his rocking chair on his front porch with a gray beard and this real gentle, kind, soft guy that you can crawl up and he can hold you in his arms and you can cry. You know what's wrong with that picture though? That same gray bearded, wise, gentle, kind God cannot control the universe. He's not all powerful. It's important for us to understand the breadth and the magnitude and the significance and the greatness of who God is and the fact that he is holy and he is grand. And I find what happens here is God says, Moses, I've had enough of this. Get your head out of your backside and get moving. See, if you really understand this, and I think as you look at the pages of scripture, sin, we are sinners. God is not. Sin is referred to in the pages of scripture as adultery. James chapter 4 says it so clearly, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God? I remember very vividly when I sat with a man who his wife had committed adultery. And I listened to this husband say very limply and passively, I've forgiven her. He expressed no emotion. He expressed no anger. He expressed no animosity towards his wife. He just, I'm a good Christian. I've forgiven her. I remember looking back at this guy and said, you know what? You're sick. You're unhealthy because you don't love your wife. Because God, when he talks about adultery, it wells up. It's a jealous rage. You want, God wants total and complete allegiance to himself. God wants our undivided, wholehearted love moving in his direction. And when I step out and embrace something that is anything less than him, it's like committing adultery. And it wells up in God's heart, jealous. It says God is a jealous God, his, his envy and his passion. And he moves towards us because he wants us to be close with him. Because he is for us, it stirs this emotion. I remember looking at this, this man and saying, you really don't understand love. Getting ticked does not mean you don't love her and that you aren't for her, but it's that you are showing her that you are jealous for her. What God is saying to Moses in his anger is, Moses, I am jealous for you. I couldn't wait to accomplish this vision with you. Moses, I was looking forward to this journey with you. Please see me and walk with me and let's do some cool stuff together. I am for you. So sometimes when we're suffering and we're hurting, especially when it's self-inflicted suffering, I want to differentiate that. My suffering in Charlotte was partially self-inflicted sin that I had done. And at times what it takes for me to understand is, Adam, see this big, magnificent God and understand that he is for you. But because he's for you, you're going to feel some displeasure because he's jealous for you. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk about vision just practically. 
finding and following vision. Because there's some principles here in Moses. What I hear a lot of times, number one, I understand that when you're struggling and you're suffering and you're hurting, dreams are shattered and gone. So how do I find a personal purpose and vision for my life? Number two, the second thing I hear a lot is people will say to me, Adam, you're gifted with vision. You're a leader. People will say to me, I'm not. I don't know how to think vision. But it's interesting to me, those same people, though, a lot of times I talk to them, they have gifts of mercy. You know, the Bible says that we're to show mercy. So whether I have a gift of mercy or not, I'm to do it. Does that make sense? I don't have gifts of mercy, but you know what? Last night when I drove into the hospital, I, there was some parts of me that I had to dig deep and show mercy. It wasn't that hard <laughs> when you see someone suffering and you care for them, but I need to do it. I'm not natural at it, but it's what I'm required to do. The same thing I would like to say to those of you that sit here this morning and say, well, I don't, I'm not a visionary, so you just want to dismiss it. The Bible would tell you that you're in danger. Remember Jeremiah 29, 11, I have a plan for you. God has a plan and a purpose for every single one of us in this room. And for me just to dismiss it by saying, well, I don't understand vision. I'm not a leader. We, we're going to shipwreck our lives and we aren't going to have that vision and that personal drive in us. It's going to help us bring together those insignificant details of my life to ultimately accomplish something. So when I get to the end of my life, I can look back and say, wow, I did it. So I understand as people talk about this a lot. So my heart is, the rest of this as a pastor, is to say, how do we find vision? I think there's a number of things here in Moses' life that he gives us. How do I reclaim it if I'm suffering? And number two, how maybe do I just find it? So the first thing is this one. How has your life experience shaped you? When you think about Moses' life, What did God say to him when he came out and met with him? Moses, I have seen the suffering of my people in Egypt. Moses' life experience was all about suffering and hardship. Growing up, the the home that he was living in a world where babies were being killed all around him. And then he's placed in this river and he's he's then raised by his family and pulled from that family and adopted. And he's growing up in a culture then where he looks out around and says, you know what? My people are out there being beaten and killed. And here I am living in this lush palace and magnificent life. And he's wrestling and his life experience is beginning to shape him and mold him towards the purpose that God has for him. So I think the first thing for us to do is to sit back and just journal and think about your life and what experiences have you had that I have not had or the people sitting around you have not had. Schooling, education, gifts, your family, your family of origin, traditions and things that have been molded and pressed into your life. What experience has shaped you? Now, one of the things I want to say before going further is I realize we're not going to be able to go too deep on this. I have posted on Facebook... Um, our Facebook page, the church Facebook page, three books that really talk specifically about personal vision. And I encourage you to check them out there if you want to go deeper with this. If you don't have Facebook or the internet, uh, see me and I can get those books to you. The second thing, what can't you stand? This is one of the clearest ways to figure out your personal vision. What gets you worked up? What gives you angst? What makes you angry? What ticks you off? What ticked Moses off? What couldn't he stand? He could not stand or stomach seeing people abused and whipped and beaten. I think of this, I borrow this from Bill Hybels. I'm going to put this picture up on the screen. Isn't she a looker? 
That is one hot girl, let me tell you. Tall, chicken legs. I won't go further with description, but you know, she is, whew. You have these two guys, one by the name of Popeye and one by the name of Brutus, who fight for this girl. And it's interesting, I think most people like Popeye. I wear a Popeye t-shirt, and when I wear it out in public, I always, without fail, it's one of the few shirts I wear that I always get comment, comments. People say something to me. Popeye's just this lovable character. It's kind of simple, not real smart, but he's always in love with this girl and chasing after her. Now, what does he do? The stories always are the same. Things happen. Brutus pursues olive oil. They go after her. Popeye soon just gets fed up. And then what does he do? He grabs a can of spaghetti. Does anyone know what he says? That's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. And he squeezes that thing. And the pinage pops in. And he looks like Superman. And here he goes. And he saves the day. Olive oil comes into his big, her big strong hero's arms. And they move on. One of my favorite things, I think, of personal vision is what is it that you can't stand? What works you up? What gets you moving? That's your personal vision and purpose that God has placed in your heart and your life. I think of mine, there's two for me. First one is dead, dutiful religion. It angers me. I think it's also important when you think about what you can't stand and what wrecks your heart, it's also important to ask, does it wreck God's heart? Because see, Moses, when he comes and he sees these people suffering, God says the same thing. Moses, I too am wrecked by this. So not only what can't you stand, but what wrecks God's heart. And I think of dead, dutiful religion. I think of Jesus in the Gospels. What does he say? His harshest, nastiest words are always reserved for dead, dutiful, religious people. He rips them apart time in and time again. So that's one of my personal, because I've grown up in a, in a world and a system in a Christian school that was dead, but yet pushed duty. And I hated it. And it was really God shaping me and preparing me for his purpose for my life. The other one I can't stand is poor leadership. Poor leadership destroys lives, whether it's in the home, whether you're a poor father and leader of your children and your wife, it destroys life. Or whether you're a boss at your company or you own a company, poor leadership just wrecks havoc on this world. Bill Hybels, who talks about, uses that illustration, he says this, and I love this quote. It says, when we accept the world as it is. So in other words, you want to look out and see what you can't stand, but when you, when you don't do that, when you accept the world as it is, by living in the, what he calls normal state, we deny our ability to see something better. And hence, our ability, we're denying our ability to be something better. For you see, we become what we behold. What works you up? What can't you stand? What are you looking out there and saying, you know what? The way this is, is not good. And because I can see that it's not good and I can see what it should be, I am going to live towards what it should be. That's personal vision. So what is it? I think that's the second thing. What gets you worked up? I think the third thing, and this one's important. Persevere and do the 90%. Persevere and do the 90%. Now, here's what I mean by this. If you look with me at verse 24 of chapter 4. This is interesting. So Moses is heading back. He goes to, in verse 18 and following, he goes to his father-in-law and says, I'm heading back to this land. I'm going to follow God's plan for my life. So he's headed back. He's going to obey God. But verse 24 comes along. And I'll be honest, I was reading this this week, and I had forgotten about this verse. And it just puzzled me. 
Look at what it says. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses. And what's this next phrase? And was about to what? He was what? <laughs> he was about to kill him. You see, now wait a minute. Now wait just one minute. God goes to Moses and he says, let's go do this. And then they're heading out there. Moses steps out to obey. And just like that, God comes along and says, you know what? I'm going to strike you dead, dude. It's over. Now look at the rest of the verse. Look at the rest of the verse. Verse 25. But Zipporah, who's his wife, who's a Midianite woman, took a flint knife. Now, young, young men in the room, you might want to plug your ears in this. This is a painful, painful verse for you. Boys between the ages of 8 and 20 took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Just get what's happening? In the Old Testament, God said, as an act of faith, you need to circumcise your young men to set them apart to me, to show me that you are walking with me and you love me. Now, it's a painful, gruesome act. It wasn't done when they're first born like we do it here in America. You know, my little boys were circumcised when they're born. It's painful for me to watch as a father. You know, you sit there and, oh. But imagine, sorry for the word picture, but imagine, imagine now an, an eight. 14-year-old boy having that done to them. It's painful. Zipporah says, Zipporah is a foreign wife and says, no way, you're not doing this. But it's an act of disobedience to God. So here Moses is going back, but Moses is in disobedience to God and God's going to come and kill him. (laughs) So Zipporah gets it together and says, whoa, we can't have this. And they circumcise their boys. Here's here's the principle. Romans chapter 5 says this. We looked at this the first week of the series. Not only so, refer, Paul's talking about, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces what? Perseverance. Perseverance produces what? Character. And character, what does it produce? Vision. See that? A bright future. Purpose. A way forward. But in order to get the vision, I've got to do what first? Before I get my vision back and my dreams return to me, what do I have to do first? And according to this verse, persevere, and my perseverance produces character, and as I have character and the roots grow deep, I'm going to get it back. I'm going to have hope for the future. Perseverance here is a word that means patience, it means endurance. It basically is the ability to continue working in the face of strong opposition and great obstacle. No matter what I face, I am going to do what's right. I think of the verse when I talk about the 90%, persevere and do the 90%. I had a professor in college as a young student, as a Bible student. You go to any Christian college, and what the number one question the students are wrestling with, probably the same thing a lot of these students over here are, is what is my future? What is God's will for my life? Who should I marry? What career should I choose? Where should I continue my schooling? How should I do life? So we're always wrestling with God's will. And a professor stood up one time, and he said, you know what, students? You sit here and question a God's will. But 90% of it has been revealed to you already. Don't stress over the 10%. Obey the 90. And here's, he'd show this verse as an example. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. It is God's will. It's spelled out for us. 
It's spelled out that you should be sanctified, set apart, made holy is what the word means. That you should avoid sexual immorality. So it's amazing to me. I find so many people today in my own life. I've been there. I'm trying to figure out where do I want to go in life? What is God's vision and plan and purpose for me? And all the while I'm lusting in my heart. I think the message God has with Moses is Moses, set yourself apart and do the 90% and persevere. And you're going to find the other 10%. I think the f- another one, <laughs> when you're talking about the 10%, you have 9.9% of it already. What did Jesus say to his disciples when he left the earth? When he's getting ready to head back to heaven, what did he look down in Matthew chapter 28 and say? Go into the world and do what? Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So we have 9.9. No matter what my personal vision is in life, it has to include the Great Commission. I talked with a nurse one time, and I love when she said this. She said, success is never the goal. I didn't want to be a nurse so I'd be successful. I wanted to be a nurse because it was the most effective way I knew to get the results of changed lives through the person of Jesus Christ. You ever thought about why you're a mom, why you're a CEO, why you're in marketing, why you're a policeman, why you're a teacher, why you're a cafeteria lady, why you're a janitor, why are you a builder? You know, the heart of why we are the things that we are is to further the message of Jesus Christ on this earth. He's asked me to be a pastor, but he's asked you to be something else. And he's asked you to be that to fulfill the great commission to go into the world and make disciples. I am jealous. I'll be very honest. I am jealous of those of you who get to work with people that don't know Jesus day in and day out. I wish I was able to do that day in and day out. That's a gift. So in some capacity, my personal vision needs to include the great commission. I need to go at it with all I have. And the final thing I'd say is this. It's important to listen to the voice of God. Do you think God still speaks? Really think about it. Does God still speak? I believe he does. So the question I have to ask myself, am I doing everything needed to listen and to receive his voice? Am I listening? Let's kind of bring this into a close. If you think of this verse, Proverbs 29. Famous verse, I think often misunderstood and misquoted. But it says this, where there is no vision, the people what? Perish. We know this. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Where there is no vision, people perish. You don't have vision, you're in trouble. You're going to perish. The message paraphrase, I think, captures it all the more beautifully. If people can't see what God is doing... They stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. Where there is no vision, it's important for me to pay attention. What is God doing? What has he asked me to do? And give attention to that. Final thing I'd say is this. Step out and take a risk. Malcolm Gladwell, who's not a believer in Jesus Christ, the best of my knowledge, is a, is a profound writer and thinker. And he says this. He says, we're more willing to gamble when it comes to losses, but are risk averse when it comes to gains. Why don't you really think about this? 
He then goes on to talk about in his writing how there have been these experiments done where he says, imagine he did, did this one experiment with a lot of people. Imagine you're given $300. And after you're given that $300, so picture yourself, you're given $300. He says, you're then given two choices. Choice A is to receive another $100. For doing nothing, you're going to receive $100. Choice B is you toss a coin, and if it's heads, you get $200. If it's tails, you lose and get nothing. But you don't lose anything either. Make sense? You're given $300 and you're given a choice. Your choice is to just choose A and automatically get another $100 so you now have $400. Or to flip a coin and go for $200 more, thus giving you $500. Almost unanimously. Do you know what people choose? Probably the same thing you're thinking you'd choose. I know you're not gambling people. We don't do that here in the church. A little sarcasm there. But overwhelmingly, people choose A. Just give me another $100. But you've got a chance to step out and get $200 to risk. Now, he comes along and he does with the same exact people. He says, imagine now that you've been given $500. And here are your choices on this one. You either give up $100 is choice A or choice B is that you toss a coin. And if you win, you pay nothing and you walk away with your 500. But if you lose, you pay $200 out. Does it make sense? You're given $500. If I win, or I can just give up $100 as choice A, but, or I can flip the coin and I have a shot at not losing anything, but if I lose on that flip of the coin, I have to give up money, 200, more than what just 100. Guess what people overwhelmingly choose to do? To gamble, to flip the coin. From a probability and statistics standpoint, they are identical options. But overwhelmingly, when we're given the choice to, to gamble with loss, we'll gamble. If it means avoiding loss, we'll gamble, we'll risk, we'll go big. But when it comes to having what I could possess, being my vision, being life, being gain, we don't gamble and we don't risk. We as people. So my challenge to us as I go to prayer is to risk. Is to step out with personal vision. I want to read a verse before I go to prayer. It came from our quiet time. Hopefully you've been walking along with our quiet time that we've done as a church. And we're in the book of John now. A few, two weeks ago, John chapter 4, it says this. In this John's with this Samaritan woman. Or Jesus with this Samaritan woman. And the disciples go off to get some food. And it's really unusual that Jesus is even talking to this lady. She's a sinful lady. She's probably a... Um, She's very sexually active with multiple men. And Jesus is here pouring out his love to her and showing her who he is. And the fact that she can drink living water, the disciples come back and they're like, what in the world is he talking to this lady for? And they say, come on and come and get some food. And here's what Jesus says to him. He says, my food said, Jesus is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's his vision to finish his work. I have come to obey God and to carry out his work. I have come as Luke says, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he goes on to talk about 
Do you not say four more months than the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the field. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. So be glad together. Thus the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. He says, you can see it. You know the signs of the time. You can look out and see a field that's ready to be harvested. That is the food that I feed on. I want to harvest and reap those people. And it satisfies me deeply, so deep. Have you ever been in your sweet spot? Have you ever really accomplished something great? And when you're out there and you're doing it and you're accomplishing it, you know what? Suddenly you forget about the cares of this world like hunger and thirst and things that I've got to go attend to at home because you are driven, you're running hard and you're excited and you're going way to go. I'm doing it. That's the heart for Bethany, for us this morning, is that we step out and that we risk. We step out and we risk to gain and to have that vision that God has laid on your heart. To reclaim it from the years that the locusts have eaten and the suffering that's zapped it and taken it away. So as I close in prayer, if you're here this morning, you're in the midst of suffering, your dreams have vanquished and they've disappeared and they've gone. I'm going to pray specifically for you that God would begin to come alongside of you and that you would begin to persevere and that your character would grow through that. As your character grows, as Romans chapter five says, you would begin to get that hope and that vision to return. If you're here this morning, you're not in the midst of suffering, but you don't have a personal vision and personal goals and purpose nailed down. I'm going to pray for you that you would take this seriously and that you would go home this week and begin to say, what is it that God has called me to do with my life? How am I furthering the kingdom of God with my life? And if you're here this morning, you say, I've got this down. I'm running at this. My prayer for you is that you would continue to run with zest and with zeal and with passion and not look back. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I admit, hardship destroys vision and dreams. It robs us. It crushes them. And God, no doubt there are some here this morning who are in that place of hardship. They're in the middle of suffering. They're sitting smack dab in the middle of grief and of loss. And the thought of dreaming of a future, of a vision, of a purpose is a foreign concept to them right now. Maybe some of them are really angry this morning because they've stepped out and dreamed and that's what led to the loss. God, would you come alongside of them this morning? You were gracious with Moses. You repeated to say, here I am, I'm walking with you. But God, would you help them to see a God that is jealous for them, that is hungry to walk with them, that is for them? that is saying, hey, let's step out and do something together. The dream's still there. You've planted it in their heart. God, would you help pull it back out? For those here this morning that are aimlessly walking through life, God, it is a scary place to be. I think of the the, um, story that you tell of the talents that you give out. And that guy that comes back and he dug a hole and stuck them in the ground, there are harsh, scary words spoken to that person. He cast them out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So God, those that are here this morning that are just aimlessly walking through life have never seriously given attention to what is it that I'm living for? What is it that God has called me to do? What is my purpose and my vision in life? God, would you graciously walk alongside of them and help them to begin to do the things necessary to figure that out? So when they come to the end of their life and they they lay down into the grave, they can look back at their life and say, you know what, I did it. I made it, I succeeded, I risked, I stepped out. 
And look at the difference for Jesus that's been made because of it. And then, God, for those that are here this morning that are, that are on this journey, thank you for them. And would you encourage their hearts? Sometimes following vision and dreams and passion is hard work, and the daily grind of life can sap it out of us in a hurry. So, God, would you refresh their heart and their spirit this morning, and would you continue to encourage them to gamble towards gain, not just avoiding of loss? So, God, thank you for this church. Thank you for the people of Bethany. And, God, thank you for your word that ultimately gives us that vision of Jesus Christ who has come so that we could walk with you in an intimate relationship. In his name we pray. Amen.